Now that the new year has settled in and people are starting to think about their long-term goals, it's time to look for an expert who can help you with those lofty goals. Welcome to the Just Dumb Enough podcast, a show that acknowledges no one is always an expert by dispelling misconceptions with real experts. I'm your host as always, Colton Petrie. My guest today is Annie Margarita Yang. Annie was told by every professional in her life that she wasn't qualified for the job she wanted to do, but with sheer tenacity, she scored the job in just seven days. Thinking it may be a miracle, she tried to repeat the outcome, and this time did it in only six days. With one more try, she got it down to just five. Now she works to help people either score their dream jobs or chase their passions with a thorough enough plan to still pay all of your bills along the way. So many people end up settling for a job that's just good enough. It pays okay, has some benefits, and the people aren't too bad. But what about the things you always wanted to do? Your dreams and aspirations shouldn't have to die just so you can eat. That's the mindset we're aiming to fix with some tips and perspective from this nice lady who has helped so many people do it before. But if you've lost your passion, well... So I I cannot help people who are too scared to go outside of that comfort zone. Sorry about the audio levels topping out in this interview. It's a whole technical problem I couldn't solve without making our guests sound like they were speaking into a tin can. It's a single episode issue, but still a bummer to me. Anyway, let's ignore the requirements. Welcome to the show, Annie Margarita Yang. Colton, thanks for having me on today. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you on. Why don't you introduce yourself a little bit for the audience? Yeah, so I am an Asian American born here in the United States to Chinese working class immigrants. And you can imagine with that kind of background, my parents must have been really strict on education and probably expected me to go to Harvard. But that's not what happened. I did get straight A's in K to 12. But around junior year of high school, I was like, wait, I don't want to go straight to college because I don't know what I want to do with my life. It, it doesn't make sense because I've been in school my whole life. What if my interests fall outside of academia? So I didn't go straight to college, worked a whole bunch of minimum wage jobs. Eventually, I did go to college. I got a degree in communications, but I came out working at Domino's Pizza. And so it's not that golden ticket that everyone kept pressuring me to believe. (laughs) Um, I don't regret it, but it just wasn't what people were telling me. And then moving from Texas to Boston, I said, you know what? I have a new life here. I can create a new identity. I don't care what people say about me. I'm just going to go after the things I want, qualified or not. So because I got really good at saving money from living on a low income and really stretching my dollar, with everything and watching every penny, I figure, why don't I work in accounting? Because if I can do it for myself successfully, maybe I can do it on a larger scale for a business to help them manage their cash flow. So I started applying to 50 accounting jobs a day. And after seven days, landed a job. And then in my next job search, I did the same thing, got a job in six days. And then in my third job search, got the job in only five days. 
And this was with recruiters telling me that I'm unqualified and that they've been in the field for 10 years, they've seen it all, and that I could never make more than $55,000 a year if I was lucky. And I got to prove them wrong. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure that certainly feels good to be like, not only am I going to prove you wrong, I'm going to do it in a really successful way. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, was that kind of like you were trying to follow your passion towards a career field or did you have the career field in mind and then, you know, you grew a passion around it? I had the passion and I wanted to grow a career around it. I was never like, oh, yeah, I want to work in accounting. It was more like, hey, I need a job. But hey, if I'm going to work a job, might as well do something I'm pretty good at. Was I, oh, I did have an imposter syndrome and... <laughs> Was I scared that maybe someone would realize, hey, maybe she's not qualified after all, after we did hire her and realized that she doesn't even know how to make journal entries. But, you know, after I got those jobs, I did pick up some dummies books and take some online courses on Udemy.com to get up to speed and Googled whatever questions I had whenever I came across a problem. So I did learn the skills on the job, thankfully, and I learned how to make reports and how all these transactions created the report in the end. So everything was good. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, do you think that's really common? Like, I know I've had it before working different jobs where you get into it and you're like, I have no idea what I'm doing. People keep asking me questions. Hopefully they don't know that like I'm unqualified or I, I can't figure it out. I think that imposter syndrome is very much common. And in fact, that first year when I got an accounting job, I was also like, okay, well, why don't I also build a side hustle as well? <laughs> because I like to make money. Right. So I I went on um, this website. It's called biggerpockets.com. They basically attract a community of real estate investors. And I started adding everyone in Massachusetts and messaging them. I messaged about like 500 people before one person was like, sure, I'll meet with you at Capital One Cafe. I got to the Capital One Cafe. Of course, I look really young because I was only like 24 years old. Here I am. I'm trying to sell them a bookkeeping service. And I'm like, yeah, I promise you I can do it. But the, the fact is, I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> and then I was like, I hope they don't find out because like, it's one thing if you're hired for a job, it's another, if you're like, you're trying to sell to a client and telling them, yeah, 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 I can, I can produce the results you're looking for. And then, um, I, I remember going home super excited. I got the contract, but I was like, shoot, I don't know how to make these journal entries. So I went on YouTube, hoping that like somebody was teaching how to record journal entries for like real estate purchase and sales. Um, I found one, but I still didn't understand. And then after three months, th there was this piece of advice I found online. Oh, if you want to offer better service, you should ask your client what they think you could improve on. So I asked the client, what do you think I could improve on? I, I want to improve. They're like, well, your real estate knowledge could be better. I was like, oh, <laughs> so they kind of knew. But you like, you got in there. That was just sheer tenacity that you're like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to message all of them. I'm going to get a meeting. Like you just literally had the drive forward to make it happen. You know, what I've come to realize is, so sure, we could have imposter syndrome and think that we're not capable when I feel like a lot of people could be a lot more confident if they have a little shift in their mindset. Because like, I have had people tell me to my face, like, you know, I'm booked. This is my 76th podcast interview as a guest, right? I'm booked on 110. So I have so many lined up. But a month ago, I had already done at least 50 at that point. I got on a pre-interview with a host. And then the host asked me, like, 
I don't know, two questions. We were like three minutes into the conversation. And then she goes, you're not qualified to, to give branding advice or any career advice. You know, she was basically like trying to undermine me and tell me like, who, who died and made you queen of personal branding? Like you're a self-proclaimed personal branding expert. Where's your track record? And where's your like proven results and portfolio? Unless you've helped thousands of people with their personal brands and have proof of it, you don't know what you're doing. And then I was like, gee, thanks. Have a wonderful day. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> like, I think secretly a lot of people, they lack this confidence because they feel like they're going to enter a conversation. That is exactly what happened to me, but, <laughs> but they're scared of it actually happening in real life. But what I tell myself, even after that conversation is like, I have good intent. You know, I'm not lying. I'm not cheating. I'm not stealing. Like I genuinely have good intent to help somebody while making money doing it. You know, I, I want to help this person with whatever they're struggling with. Sure. I'll charge a little money in exchange because, you know, we all have to put food on our table, but like, so long as I have a good intent and I'm not doing anything wrong, I'm not like in San Francisco, you know, breaking car windows or like going to rob a store. Right. So there's nothing wrong with what I'm doing. I should be able to do it with full confidence. That's my thought. Yeah. You're like, as long as I'm coming into this with all integrity, like I know I'm on the right path. This is a thing I want to do and a thing I'm following without trying to, you know, hurt anybody or scam anybody. Like it's, it's a mindset thing. I think so. Because there's a lot of people out there who have a lot more confidence and they don't deserve that confidence at all. Like we see people like, um, did you, did you watch the Netflix show? Um, it was really popular, Tin Tinder Swindler when it came out, Netflix movie, movie. It was more like a documentary. I didn't, but I have heard people talk about it. Yeah. So basically this guy swindled a whole bunch of women. He pretended to be um, a multi-millionaire who could like fly on private jets all the time and take the woman out to um, five-star hotels, this like really fancy jet set life. And all the women thought that he was the one with the money, but actually he had several girlfriends all at the same time. And then he would take the money from girlfriend A to pay for stuff for girlfriend B and then ask girlfriend B for some money and use that to pay for girlfriend C, basically like this Ponzi scheme down the line of girlfriends. And then I was like, and he did it. You could see it because like these, these women have like actual phone, recorded phone calls, videos from the guy on WhatsApp, you know, all of this stuff, Instagram. So it's like this like larger than life guy in real life, you know, not fake actual footage. And I was like, my God, this guy is literally the definition of fake it till you make it. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, and, and, and he has no remorse for being so unethical while doing it. Right. So I was like, if he can do that, why can't I, but I can do it ethically. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I mean, even that, even like this, this rampant scamming that's going on, like that requires a drive to do more than just your day job too. Which is like a lot of people, I think just, you know, they do the day job and that's good enough. They're like, I'm doing the thing I'm supposed to. Life will just happen good, right? Yeah. I think though, people need to go beyond just their day job if they want to get ahead financially these days. Oh yeah, absolutely. But it's, you know, that's the mindset is like, well, I've been told I have to get a job. So I got a job and now I get to live the American dream, right? Like the idealism that we've we've thrown out there like i just get that because i hit the day job and they like 
they kind of let the passion that they have die along the way. Yeah, I think so. I I watch I'm 28 now. I watch as I grow older the people that I've met back then. I'm like, "Why are you so boring now?" <laughs> <laughs> like what happened to you? <laughs> they don't do anything on the weekends. They just go out to eat. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean certainly. So how do you, you know, how do you tell people this is a necessary step? Like how do you get them out of the comfort zone? Well, I can't. I only help people who already have the passion because like how am I supposed to keep pushing a guy who I don't know. Like let me give you an example. Like there's my husband, right? It's very clear already he has a passion for singing. Every day I watch him watch YouTube videos, play the same stuff over and over again. He's like, "Did you hear that high note?" <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, can you hear the difference between tenor A and tenor B? I'm like, "No." <laughs> um <laughs> And I've been like pushing him. I was like, well, when are you going to pursue singing? And we've been married for seven years. He's never tried to pursue it professionally. That's yeah. even with all my pushing every day, right? So I, I cannot help people who are too scared to go outside of that comfort zone. I can only help them after they feel like they're ready to pursue it. Like this one guy, he came to me. He's he came to me and said, "I've been unemployed for six months, and I desperately need work." I was like, "Okay, let me try to help you." And then this whole time, I swear, because I met him like outside of work, I thought he was a magician. Like I thought that's what he did professionally, like a magician, because that's all I knew him for. But it turns out that his day job was、um, doing database administration. I have never heard him talk about this before, but he gave me his resume and it was three pages long. He had an extensive background in database administration, and then we're on session eight at this point. And then the first seven sessions were literally me helping him get database administration jobs because that's what he said he wanted. But he was self sabotaging himself all along the way. Let me give you an example. You're you're gonna go crazy. <laughs> he said to me he wasn't getting any callbacks or interviews, and he was wondering why, even though he submitted so many applications in. And I was like, well, let me take a look. Like, let's download the resume that you uploaded to these sites. Let me take a look at what you put in there. It turns out that he deleted his email address. His phone number and mailing address from the top of his resume. <laughs> I'm just like Peter. How do you expect anyone who's interested in you to contact you? And then he just goes, "Well, if they really liked me, they'd find a way." <laughs> it, it was quite clear. It was really clear. Like he, it was, it was more than just that. There were several things he did that just communicated to me he really doesn't want to do this <laughs> for his line of work,、um, and then. Finally, actually, this morning I had a coaching session with him, and 30 minutes in, he's talking about the database administration, and then I'm like, my intuition's like, I think in one minute he's gonna tell me that he wants to do magic, and then in one minute he literally said, "But let me tell you something even better. I think I want to do magic. <laughs> I think I want to give this up. I think I'm just gonna go after doing magic." I was like, "Yeah, I think so too." Yeah, I mean, do you see like having worked with people like this where they do have that? That drive and passion, like, is there something they have that you don't see in the normal person, where it's like, oh, you know, like they have genuine want to do it, or they're in a position where they have to do it, like you have to succeed, or you're, you know, going to be on the street. Is there something like that? No, I think for some people, that passion, that joy it brings them is so strong. They, like, they literally, if they had to pursue something that's not their passion, they would die inside. Like you can see this guy, he's like, 
doing everything he can to resist applying to jobs. You know, like when I helped him with his resume, we cut it from three pages long because we all know three page resumes get thrown in the trash. I don't know why his was three pages long. I cut it to one page for him. But you know what he did to sabotage himself? He added one more page back in. So then <laughs> yeah, he was uploading two page resumes and he was also wondering why he wasn't getting callbacks. And then I was like, you know, I explained multiple times it had to be one page and you're ruining your chance of success, <laughs> you know, <laughs> even after me, like literally holding your hand and making it one page. So this is the kind of guy he literally, I think, would die inside if he wasn't doing magic, because in the middle of today's coaching session, he was like, let me show you a trick. And then like he took out um, a, a deck of cards and started showing me a trick. And you could literally see like his joy. It was like he suddenly like came so alive. I was like, he's a different person, you know, yeah. it's amazing. I mean, do you think everyone has those things that they're just like, they're ignoring? Like you said, you know, your husband has this immense passion for music. Peter has this immense passion for magic. And they're, they're kind of in this zone where they're like, well, I don't know if I'm ready to chase that or I'm getting into a place where I'm ready to chase it. Do you think everybody has that and they're just ignoring it? Yeah, I think deep down inside, everyone has at least some inkling, some idea of what they're interested in, even if they haven't even done it. Like my friend, for example, she was an account. She's still an accountant. That That's her day job, right? But like, I've known her for eight years. And when I met her, she was into photography. Now she never took any pictures. She never picked up that camera, but I know for a fact that her parents bought her a $3,000 DSLR camera along with like a $5,000 lens, you know, like wow. her parents had money and got her this yeah. and she never, never turned the camera on. Right. And, but she was always telling me, oh, I want to make film. I want to make film. And then like, finally she got fired a few months ago. And then she was like, you know what? I think I need to stop crying about how much I hate my job and complaining about how much I hate it every single freaking day. She would text me really angrily about her job every day. And she's like, I think this is a blessing in disguise. I should just pursue the things that make me happy. And finally, she picked up the camera and started shooting photos every day. She has made some money doing it. It's not financially viable for her yet, but it brings her joy. <laughs> so I think everyone has it, but I think we've had like well-meaning adults drill into people that you can never make money from your passion. So don't even bother trying. Certainly one of those where you're like, you can tell that comes from them caring because they're like, look, I don't want to see you, you know, fail and lose all your money and, you know, live this destitute life. But, you know, I, I like seeing your passion. Do you think it's hard to find a good balance in there? Like if you have a day job and you have a passion, is there room enough for both? Or do you think that that's too idealistic? Do you think it's hard to manage those that balance? No, I think there's room enough for both. Everything is hard, right? But it's the hard things that are worth pursuing. You know, like I have always wanted to play piano when I was a kid. My parents never allowed me to play piano. They got me guitar lessons. They got me singing lessons, but I asked for piano lessons for years and they always said no. Um, they used some stupid excuse. They said, oh, it's because you're going to injure your hands. I'm like, what? What's that? <laughs> you know, uh, it wasn't until I, an adult that I, I complained to them. I was like, you never gave me permission to learn piano. They're like, well, we couldn't afford it. I was like, what? 
could have just been honest about it instead of saying that I'm going to hurt my hand, right? <laughs> anyway, so I finally started learning piano at 26. So I've been like practicing practically every day now for the last two and a half years. And I don't, I don't want to, like, I have a full-time job, first of all. I have a business that I run. I get on these podcast shows. I've written a book. Like, do I have time for piano? I still have time for piano. Like, literally, before I got on this interview with you, I've spent the last three hours doing my music theory homework so that I could pass a grade five exam. So I think it's a matter of, like, if you want something badly enough, you'll rearrange your entire life. You'll, you'll cut out non-essential commitments. You will learn how to better manage your time and your calendar so that you're willing to do whatever it takes. People yeah. who, ha who are able to pursue their passions and make money doing it, they are willing to put in that sacrifice. Yeah, it certainly seems like one of those where you hear people say a lot like, well, I don't have the time for it. It's like, okay, what do you do when you get home from work? And they're like, well, I take an hour or two to de-stress in front of the TV. I'm like, all right, that's a long time. You're really spending two hours watching TV and then saying you don't have any time. Yeah. Two hours times 365. You have an extra 700 hours yeah. in a year for your passion. <laughs> yeah, honestly. And that's if you want to practice, like they say, language learning. Like if you spend 15 or 30 minutes a day, after two years, you're going to be pretty deep into this language. So it's like that doesn't even take your whole time that you're spending watching TV. You could do three other things in that time period still. You know, the, the fact that we always say that, like, I don't have time seems a little silly when you like I, break I down your so. timeline. I think so. And I think people vastly overestimate how much time they think it, be, it takes to become good at something. <laughs> There's this funny story. So like, you know, like a full time job, eight hours a day times a whole year. That's like 2040 hours. Right. So back when I was working one of those minimum wage jobs, I was doing I was cutting cold cuts at the deli counter at the grocery store. But it was a part time job. I worked 24 hours a week uh, for six months at that job. And then I had quit that. I walked into another supermarket. They had a sign on their door saying they were hiring a deli slicer uh, full time. So I went in to apply and then the manager was like, how much experience do you have cutting code cuts, you know, operating a cheese and, and meat slicing machine? And then I was like, six months part time. He's like, well, you can't get really good at it unless you've been doing it full time for a whole year. Our customers are really picky about their code cuts and 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 you're not good at doing that unless you've been doing it full time for a whole year. I did the math. I was like two thousand forty hours to operate a deli slicing machine. What is this? You know, <laughs> it takes 2040 hours before you can get really good at it, quote unquote, according to that guy. And then, you know, I've been practicing piano for the last two and a half years, maybe an hour a day, sometimes half an hour, sometimes two hours. You know, I'm, I'm about like 700 hours at this point. Right. I can actually say I'm pretty, pretty good at it at this point. And I haven't even hit that 2040 hours. That guy is saying I need to cut code cuts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're like, the piano has a lot more keys and moving yeah, pieces. Yeah, it's a lot more complex. <laughs> you're like, your meat slicer has three buttons. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's a lot of perspective. Like, you know, this, this show talks to people, and this goes back to what you were saying being on someone else's show where they're just like, I don't think you're a good fit. Is you're like each thing is going to require a different amount of experience of time in like you don't need you know two thousand hours as a meat slicer 
but maybe you need 10,000 as a biochemist. Like they're very different levels of like what makes you an expert at what you do. That's right. But even I find that like um, when I was learning bookkeeping, I mean, it took me maybe two years full time before I got comfortable. And now I can fully say I, I can pretty much handle any problem that's thrown at me, bookkeeping related, you know, um, but like I haven't spent 10,000 hours doing bookkeeping. <laughs> and and like, here's the thing. I feel like a lot of people, especially if it's their passion, they feel like they have to be world class at it. I, I was reading um, because I got really obsessed with piano and I kept wondering to myself, well, how far can I go as an adult? I know the answer in my heart is I won't know until I get there. Right. Uh, but I, I wanted to see what were the results of other adult beginners who started um, and if they practice every day, how far they would go or like how far does a child go if they practice every day for 10 years, like from, let's say, age five to age 15. And like by and large, many pianists say, you know, I didn't feel like I was good enough to just like play a piece that was placed in front of me and do it, execute it competently or to play a really advanced piece until I hit the 3000 hour mark or about the 3,500. And other people on Reddit chimed in and said, yeah, I agree. I think about the 3,500 mark. So you don't really need to hit 10,000 hours to be able to even play an advanced classical piece. About the 3,000 hour mark sounds about right, you know? So I think people vastly overestimate how much time it takes to get good at something. Yeah, I mean, certainly. And that's kind of an interesting question is like, when do you think in your it's got to be a mindset, right? Because we just said like hours are irrelevant to some extent. When do you kind of should you allow yourself to say I'm an expert like in your own mind or out loud? Yeah, that that's a that's quite a difficult question. You've asked me, actually, <laughs> <laughs> because I actually didn't feel even when I was doing accounting work, I felt like so. Um, I had such an imposter syndrome, I couldn't fully say I'm an accountant because I would even tell my friends like, but I still don't have an accounting degree. I'm like, I'm not a real accountant. You know, I kept saying not a real accountant over and over again until finally I, I was just like, you know, I'm a damn accountant. <laughs> if you don't think so, then go away because people are paying me literally to do accounting. Okay. Um, so I think it's a matter of like, you have to decide you step into it and go like, no, I know this subject, I'm an expert, right? Like what, how long have I been teaching branding? I've been teaching branding since August. Yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, that was four months ago. I'm a four month branding expert, okay? Um, but no, like what makes me an expert? Like, especially that woman who was telling me I'm unqualified to start calling myself an expert. I was saying like, well, I have a brand. I have 18,000 followers online. My YouTube channel has over a million views. What makes me not a, an expert at what I do? Like, I literally have results that I created for myself. All I need to do is replicate those results for other people. But, you know, people have landed jobs in five days. You know, I had my friend, the accountant who lost, who got fired. She landed a job in 10 days following my advice. Someone else, uh, a stay at home mom literally a stay-at-home mom for over well over 20 years, followed the advice in my book. She landed a job in only five days. Someone else landed a job in 14 days. So I'm just like, it's replicable, you know, and now I must be an expert, no? Yeah, yeah, you're like, yeah. we're not just telling stories. I have data to back this up. Like, I know how it works. We found the system. And I think that's, it's very important that you said, you know, like there is a level of imposter syndrome in it because you know, in order for some people to say, like, I am an expert, that feels like putting on a mask. Is there like, well, I have to say I'm an expert 
or people won't believe me or people won't take what I say seriously. Do you think there's an easier way to like keep being who you are and still, you know, represent yourself as an expert? Uh, I I think I don't think those two are opposed to each other. They, they those are not exclusive. You are who you are, and you are an expert at what you do, right? Um, I I think maybe here's another thing that people need to consider in terms of their mindset. Look at what happened during COVID. All these experts that got on the air. Now I'm not saying let's believe in conspiracy theories or non-science or misinformation, right? But we have a whole bunch of quote-unquote experts who got on TV, who got in the news to talk about things that they had no idea what they were talking about. And then we, I also realized that politicians have no idea what they're doing. You know, uh, when the supply chain issue happened and nobody could get access to masks, I was like, where are the people supplying the stuff in our economy? You know, I had to actually like, go to Joanne's fabric store, buy some fabric um, and make the masks myself. I made 400 of them for other people. I wasn't an expert in making masks, you know. <laughs> Where are these experts? I, I question. And all of a sudden, I realized nobody actually knows what they're doing. Literally everyone, every adult in our society is an adult child, like a child in an adult's body, <laughs> making it all up as they go along because they didn't know how to handle the COVID crisis when it came out. And then the, the bankers also right now, they don't know how to handle the banking crisis that we're in the middle of right now either. Nobody knows what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, that's a very important thing where you're like, you look at a guy who's very well put together. He's in a suit. He talks, you know, fairly eloquently. And yet you're like, yeah, but 20 years ago, that was just some dude picking his nose in a, you know, a college dorm room or something. Like, when does the transition happen in there? And the answer is like, it doesn't, you're still the same person. You just like learned how to mask it a little better. I think like you talk a little more confidently because you have a little more experience or someone said they respect you. Like these changes just kind of accumulate and then you become that new person when you need to be. That's right. It's all just an outside perspective. Like I still see myself as a very normal person. I my mind of myself hasn't changed. I still feel like I'm the same person I was at 18 years old. I look at myself, I'm like, I'm 10 years older now, but I still feel like that child. <laughs> I feel like nothing has changed about me. You know, the only difference is I'm more competent at what I do. But uh, what I've come to realize is there's four things in our society that really make people think, oh, wow, this person really has it together. One is money. If you can like manage your money, accumulate it. And, and like grow it into becoming more wealthy, people will think better of you. The second one is social. If you can expand your network, meet new people. That's another thing because who you associate with is what people think of you. You know, if you associate yourself with like founders and CEOs, people must be like, oh, you must be also really successful. Uh, third thing is I think recognition, finding a way to get recognized. That's why we see things like Forbes 30 under 30, Entrepreneur 30 under 30, all these like uh, titles that aren't like, what are those called in the yearbook? The superlatives, I think it is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's similar to that, except it's just on an adult level. It's the same thing. It's just a popularity contest, you know? <laughs> like another measure is just like, can you win an award in something? Like 
how did I manage to call myself an award-winning author? Nobody knocked on my door and said, hey, your work is so good. We want to give you this award. It didn't work like that. I had to pay a hundred bucks per award application. I applied to like 50 of them. I spent $5,000 on this whole thing just to find out which one can I win. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it is literally a pay to play game. Okay. Um, and then I think the fourth one is like cultural, having cultural knowledge so basically fitting into the culture, you know, having manners, that is something that will also increase people's perception of you because it, it is part of that. Like, what is that confidence, right? What does it mean to be confident here in America? We look people in the eye. We give that firm handshake. Our shoulders are back. We stand up straight. That is cultural knowledge. Certainly. And, and a part of that seems like, you know, people don't show up to the race either because they're so scared they can't compete or they don't know that it's out there, right? I'm sure there's people out there who have put out a book, you know, self-published on Amazon Digital, and they're just like, okay, now I wait for the award people to show up at my door. Like any day now, they're going to send me a letter that says like, please show up to the red carpet event. And you're like, well, that's not how it works. Like you got to put in a lot of effort just because you finished a book doesn't mean like you're a successful author. Like go go make sure you actually like deserve those accolades, become an award-winning author, a bestseller, something like that. Oh yeah, but this, I'm telling you, Colton, this applies to traditionally published as well. You know, I, um, I did a lot of research into this because I'm self-published and, and I'm like, well, what do those, those big publishing houses have over their authors? Like what, what benefit do those authors have over someone like me? You know, like, um, because like, I question, you know, we, we see people in our society. Well, I grew up, I don't know how old you are, but I, you know, grew up with Justin Bieber and Miley Cyrus and Demi Lovato and all these people. And I'm just wondering, like, were they picked because they're super talented or were they, did they pick somebody that they thought would be uh, well liked by the masses and then pour millions of dollars into marketing this person? Right. And then I was like, I think it's the opposite. You can take somebody who has potential. They already have to have potential. Right. But we have so many people who have potential. Why do you <laughs> pick this specific person? Right. So they have the potential and you pour just millions of dollars into their photo, into getting them into publications, into getting them into the radio, you know, podcasts, all sorts of stuff, all out attack, basically, so that they become like this overnight artist that just blew up. That's what I think. You know, someone like Rachel Zegler, she she was popular on YouTube. She was singing and then uh, she got picked for West Side Story. Right. And then now she's a star. Right. But I'm pretty sure a lot of money was poured into her. Um, so I'm just like, why can't I do the same? The These big publishing houses, what they do is they pick an author that they think has a potential to make a lot of money. Like, let's say it was someone like Adam Grant. He's really popular in the business space. He's written four books at this point. Uh, and then like, they, they just give them this really big budget to go big, right? And then I was like, well, why don't I go big? Why don't I give myself that big budget and spend my own money, risk it all to see how big I can go? You know, yeah. if I don't have that backing behind me, I found out that um, these publishers, they use this site, it's called Edelweiss. Um, which is a site that you, librarians use to determine which books to stock their libraries with, or like um, book buyers, like independent bookshops or Barnes and Noble, they look on this site to see which ones they should stock their uh, bookstores with as well. And then on this site, they're required to put their marketing plan. 
whatever books get published, uh, the big four, they're supposed to put the marketing plan for each book. I was like, the marketing plan is literally right there. <laughs> I'm just going to copy that marketing plan. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I think, I think it's fantastic. You know, like you said, you're self-published and I think there are platforms now, like the ability to self-publish easily, you know, without having to like absolutely break your bank account in half and mortgage your house, YouTube, you know, the ability for people to find an audience without having to, you know, do a massive marketing in print media and everything else just to like get some listeners. I think that is expanding, like who can show up to the race, right? Like it's no longer who has the most money. It's genuinely like your talent level is being risen up to be like, well, now it's a competitive playing field. Go. Yeah, but there's it's, it also goes beyond that, not just showing up. What I found is that other people, they think that it's enough to simply pay for a PR company, a, a marketing company that can promise them uh, to get them in front of like uh, these big shows, get them booked and stuff like that. But if you're not, you yourself am still not like willing to put in the hard work of you getting yourself booked on those shows. I mean, you're not going to get booked, I swear. You know, like you still have... I, I honestly think the way to go is to introduce yourself, make yourself known to your local TV station, your radio station. What I did, I'm in the process of doing this. I'm trying to get booked for speaking engagements. I'm trying to tap into existing large groups and speak other rather than create my own event. Why not look for an organization and say, hey, I can speak at your organization. Just you know, tell these people in your organization to show up. Um, so what I had to do was like, I made a list of 600 organizations here in Massachusetts. I'm literally just going to call all of them one by one and go like, Hey, I'm Manny Yang. I'm a local author, best-selling award-winning author. Can I, can I speak at your nonprofit or your school? <laughs> yeah. You know, like you have to put in the work. No one's going to do that for you. Well, and that certainly like builds up your resume. You know, like you said, you don't want to have a three page resume, you know, unless you're pitching to, I guess, some of these companies where you're like, look, I've spoken at 30 different events for all these different people. I'm a best-selling author and I have, you know, millions of views online. Like it, it steadily kind of builds up where you're like, I didn't start with any speaking engagements, but now I have one and then two. And then like, it just keeps going up and up and eventually oh, yeah. people are like, oh, look at that. Oh yeah. And even like, even for small events that no one's ever heard of, <laughs> I'm not sure if you heard of this guy. His name is Dr. Shiva on YouTube. He, he's a little out there in terms of his views. <laughs> he can be a little bit conspiracy theorist, even though some of the things I, I think I agree with what he says. Um, but like in his bio over and over again, he says he was the inventor of email. <laughs> this is really funny because what he did was he patented something called email, but it wasn't the email that we know today was just called email. <laughs> so there's the irony in that. Um, but he also says like MIT lecturer and he goes live. And then like I, I watch some of those lives. I'm like, well, I live right here in Boston. So MIT is like literally only 10 minutes away from me. So I'm just like, how does he how does he get to speak at MIT all the time? And it turns out he's like speaking at student clubs. And then I, I look at how many people show up. There's like only 10 people in the room. But like you get to say MIT lecturer. I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I, I just spoke at from, from my first one, um, Suffolk University a few days ago. Now I can say I spoke at Suffolk University, but actually it was like a, an existing networking event where I got to speak for like five minutes. But what 
I'm now I'm a I'm a speaker. I spoke at Suffolk University. <laughs> Just yeah. like he he took advantage of this and and spun it to be something so amazing. I'm an expert. I spoke at MIT. Yeah. yeah. You're like take notes. That's what we're doing first. <laughs> like eventually <laughs> it'll be a large MIT event. You're like, but first it's going to be some student groups. Yeah. That's fantastic. I mean, do you have other tips that you like to give people when they're trying to you know, like buff up their resume or look a little more appealing to the outside forces? Do you like, hey, these are the top things you, you've got to do these? Oh, yeah. The number one thing I always push for is you got to get a professional headshot. That headshot has to scream that you're the right one for the job. You know, it, it is like the thing that leaves a memorable, lasting impression on people. Now, I've had YouTube comments, they've, they've complained like, well, this encourages discrimination and bias because, well, what if someone wants to give you a job just because of how pretty you look in the photo? Or like they can see that you're black, so they don't want to hire you. But I'm just like, hey, it's just a matter of, I think the photo is just about putting your best foot forward. You know, I've seen black people on LinkedIn, you know, uh, especially women who were very well dressed and so gorgeous i was like oh my god you've got great style you know i'm so impressed so it can work for you it can work against you why don't you make it work for you right what i recommend that everyone does is you need to look for a local headshot photographer a professional one um don't don't go to a wedding don't 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 get one of those pictures you took took at the wedding and crop someone out that's not professional and then like book the appointment and to look super nice, you should take out all of the clothes in your closet and wear them in front of the mirror. If it looks good in front of the mirror, next is to take a picture of yourself on your iPhone. Like put a timer, take a picture and do it for each one that you think looks nice. And then you see on your phone which one looks the best on camera. That will most likely look good in the studio because just because it looks good in front of the mirror doesn't mean it's good in front of the camera. Next thing, get an appointment to style your hair. So get a fresh haircut, cut off all the split ends. You know, basically you have to look like, um, I think a supermodel, you know, like all those supermodels, they, they get their hair done before they get a photo shoot. So you gotta do the same. Next thing is makeup. This applies for men and women. Um, don't do your own makeup, get the professional makeup artist to do it for you because the technique for putting on makeup on your skin so that it looks natural and nice is different because you're under the bright white studio light so if you do it yourself you might look like a ghost so th those are my tips no i mean that's good and it's one of those that people are like oh this is kind of more expensive than i thought and you're like yeah but you don't have to do it every time you apply you're gonna do one of these and then maybe your next one's not for what two years yeah and and honestly here, here's how i like to think about it okay how much did you go to college yes how much did you pay? Probably about 30 grand. All right. So you spent 30 grand on your degree. Okay. Yeah. I'm asking you to spend maybe $500 on a headshot. Like you're willing to spend 30 grand on a college degree, but are you willing to spend $500 on the headshot afterward to make sure you secure the best entry level job straight out of college that you possibly can and set the foundation for the rest of your career? Yeah. Um, where are people's priorities here, you know? Especially if you took any of those classes where they're like, oh, hey, the mandatory book that you're going to need for this class is $600. Right. And you barely use that book. So you're like, you're paying less for this professional headshot and all the treatment that you need for it than you did for one mandatory book. Right. 
that I guarantee you, this headshot, people don't believe me, but that's because people are not willing to follow my advice. But this advice works. You have to be willing to risk things and just take a chance and see. I took the risk and I, I see for myself. So I spent $600 on the headshot. The photographer asked me, I was 24 years old, okay? The photographer asked me the way I do it. He's one of the best in his industry here in Boston. I ask people, what job do you want? The picture isn't for the job you have, it's for the one you want. Um, and then I was like, well, I already just got this job because I landed the job so quickly. So I was like, I guess for my next job, uh, I would like to be a CFO. So make me look like a future CFO in the making. He's like, okay. And it did, it looked like, I didn't look like a CFO, but I looked like someone who's young and is on track to becoming CFO. That's what it looked like in the picture. And earlier this year, I was offered a part-time CFO position, which I turned down, but isn't that good? I spent $600, I was offered a position. Someone else in my shoes would have taken it and earned more money, but I chose to stay because of the kind of benefits I get at this company now. But like this, this can make the difference. It can, you're able to make like, let's say $35,000 more. My, my jump from the second accounting job that I had to the, thir to the third one, I made $35,000 more right? Just this one switch, you can earn that much more. And then I built my accounting firm. It's a, still a side hustle, but it's 80k on the side. I mean, these are like clients that I'm getting on the internet, right? They, they tell me, oh, yeah, I looked at your website, it was impressive. I looked at your LinkedIn to vouch you. Yeah, impressive. We want to go with you. You know, it's all part of the branding. I think the photo really speaks the difference, right? Then me getting on shows for podcasts, I had to get a new headshot taken, right? I spent $4,500 on the headshots because I wanted to use a celebrity photographer, someone who shoots famous people, because I wanted the photo to make it look like I'm super famous as well, <laughs> to make it so that people want me booked on their show. So that's why I spent so much. Other people should not follow my advice unless they want to be famous. <laughs> um, and, and like, I think that was well worth the money because how did I get booked on 110 shows so quickly? I mean, I got booked on them in only three months, right? It's I think it's the photo because people are looking at it and they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. We want her on our show, you know? Um, I, I spoke to other PR companies whose job is to book guests on their on other people's podcasts. And you know what they were charging? They were charging $400 per booked show. They, they were charging $800 to $1,000 a month. They require you to sign a 12-month contract. And they said, we can get you booked on two shows a month. So uh, a successful client is someone who gets booked on about 24 shows for the year. They're asking for about $12,000, okay? Um, and I said, yeah, no thanks. I already got booked on 110 without thanks to you. You know, yeah. I think it's partially because I got the photo and I, I came up with a really comprehensive media kit. Well, and that's crazy. I mean, anybody out there that hears that and thinks like, oh, well, maybe it's worth it. Like, I know people, I, I have worked for a show that operates in the top 0.1% of all shows. They don't charge for appearances. So it's no, like yeah, the I, money is strictly like going into these people to send some emails. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. That's right. You can send your own emails. You do not have to do this. <laughs> But people pay people, you know, people who don't have time to do this themselves, they're willing to pay, but they just don't realize how bad of a deal they're getting when they're paying for this kind of service. Yeah. And I guess if that's, you know, that's the amount of effort you can put in and the money doesn't bother you, 
that works, but it, it just seems, it seems so silly. Is there other things in there? Like you had said, you know, these are the things I, I tell people you need to do, right? You got to cut your, your resume down to a page. You should have this professional headshot. Are there other things that you've heard people advise and you just say like, you don't need to do that at all? No, I, I don't care. I've never listened to what other people said, so I don't know what to tell them that they don't need to do. I simply tell them what I think they should be doing. Yeah. So uh, the next thing is, it's really important to get a bio written for your LinkedIn profile. And if you have a website, you know, just a one page website with your bio and your photo and contact me, right? That really made the difference for me in particular, because the bio isn't about what you already done, what you've already accomplished. It's not about your past. The bio is actually about your future. It's about like the things that you want to accomplish 10 years from now, 20 years from now, what track are you on? Um, that's really important because when somebody sees your profile, let's say you have a nice picture, you have some accomplishments, they want to work with you, but they want to make sure like if they're partnering or collaborating with you or hiring you for a job, it fits into your overall end goals. Like someone who's really a superstar or a rock star at what they do, like you, you want to speak to them, like you're trying to convince them to work for you, right? Not the other way around. And unless they know which way you're headed, how would they know how to come in at a certain angle and to convince you to work for them? I've had so many people on LinkedIn reach out to me or like employers directly. They're like, we really like your work. Can you come work for us? And I'm like, it's just not lined up with what I want to do. Sorry. Right. So the bio is more about what direction you're going. What do you want so that you get the right opportunities, not just any old opportunity. And you can use ChatGPT to write that. I paid I paid initially three hundred dollars before ChatGPT came out. You can use ChatGPT and pay only twenty dollars a month for something like this. So there's no reason why you cannot complain about the cost on this one. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, anybody that listens to this and thinks like, eh, maybe it's good advice. Maybe it's not. I would like to reiterate where we started in this interview to where we got now, which is, you know, you were applying to jobs and they're like, ah, I don't know if you'll ever make 55,000 a year. And you're like, my side hustle makes 80,000. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. So it, it's like, you know, these steps you take are super critical. And so, you know, I would like to thank you just for coming on and sharing all this because it's an amazing amount of information that you're just, you know, giving people just out of the kindness of your heart at this point. Well, the information I look, I think what a lot of people do is they hold back the information. You know, they're like, oh, let me sell them the sizzle. I'll sell them like the benefit of buying my book or like the benefit of following what I want to teach them. They got to buy the course to really figure it out. But I'll sell them the benefits of what they'll get if they buy the course. And what I, I've taken so many courses, I've read, read so many books and I've come to realize it doesn't matter what format you learn it in or who you learn it from. The information is the information and it's not a secret. You know, these days there's so much information on the internet and now they've shoved literally books into ChatGPT. You know, you can ask ChatGPT any question. It will turn out the answer you're looking for, right? So I'm not here to sell information. Um, I only want to help people who are actually willing to do the work. You know, like if you're like that guy who who wants to sabotage yourself all the way by removing your contact information from the top of your resume, you won't get far, even with all the right information I give you. You know, I only want to work with somebody. Basically, I want to help people who are ready to shine their light, 
who have a passion for what they do, who want to do good in society, those are they make up like maybe less than five percent of the population, right? But if I can help those specific people, then it can be this ongoing pyramid scheme as well, because they will learn how to make money and then they can teach other people how they can upgrade their life and, and so on and so forth. It's almost like, you know, how Jesus, he only needed 10 followers in the beginning. He was just like, hey, you follow me. <laughs> yeah. You know, he had 10, 10 disciples and um, it grew into something huge. You know, we have so many Christians in the world today. So I, I, I think of it the same way. The information is it, it doesn't mean very much. So that's why I give it away so freely. Yeah, of course. Well, I've appreciated it immensely. Uh, thank you so much for your time. I wanted to make sure everyone knows where to find you. There will also be links to this in the show notes, but tell everyone where they can find you. Yeah, the best way they can find me is by going to annieyangfinancial.com. That's www.annieyangfinancial.com. The five-day audio, um, five-day job search audiobook is actually free. So at the top of the page, you can click on audiobook, put in your name, your email address, and you can download the five-hour book. Um, another thing that I want to encourage people who are listening is to follow me on TikTok because I have gotten censored and shadow banned on YouTube despite having 18,000 subscribers. Um, so because TikTok is more friendly toward independent views, follow me on TikTok and help me grow my TikTok, please. Yeah, absolutely. Well, please look into the, the following for that. If you pick up Annie's book, please leave good reviews. That helps people grow. If you're going to social media, just drop a comment. It's so easy. Just say like good with a thumbs up. That's it. That's all it takes. And now you're promoting their content too. So more people can find it. Thank you so much for recommending Colton. Of course. Thank you for being here. So it turns out that our society is just a numbers game. Want to get into a job field really badly? 50 applications a day. Want to win an award for writing? 50 applications to different contests. Want to have a bunch of new followers online? Pay a service to subscribe people to you. It bums me out a little, but it also does a really good job at bringing objective success that much closer by showing me we're all on the cusp of succeeding. The February rankings have some updates. Number one, the United States, led by New York, Oregon, and California. Number two, Canada, with Quebec still leading by a little. Number three, England of the United Kingdom. Number four, New Zealand. And number five, Australia, bumping Germany by just a couple of listeners. That's it for this week. Have a great week, a great weekend, and I'll see you all back here for the next episode. Until that next episode, please do all those things that help the show grow, like rating, reviewing, liking, and subscribing. And remember, you can reach out to dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com or on any of the social medias if you'd like to reach me personally. But most importantly, stay dumb.